You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. It's four o'clock and welcome to the penultimate Tuesday home time for 2020 with Jan Bartlett. And I'll be here with you until six this evening. We send our best wishes to Kevin Healy and the week that was will recommence in 2021. But today on the program, from being awarded the title of UN Humanitarian Hero to languishing in an Israeli cell for over four years, Jessica Morrison from APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, will be speaking about Mohammed Al-Halabi and how you can add your name to the campaign to get him home to his family in Palestine. A look back at the year for the people of Western Sahara, both in the occupied territories and the refugee camps in Algeria, as the conflict between Western Sahara and Morocco has reunited. I'll be speaking with Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. A year in the life of an activist, that was what I asked Peter Murphy to reflect on as 2020 draws to a close. And finally, the winding up of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, the anti-war and peace organisation based in Chicago, and what the future holds in a new organisation. You'll hear from one of the founders and now co-coordinator, Kathy Kelly. From being a UN humanitarian hero to a jail cell in Israel, yet another example of what some people believe is that in the eyes of the Zionist regime in Israel, just to be a Palestinian is a crime. I'm speaking about a man who has spent more than four years in an Israeli jail on what could only be trumped up charges of funneling millions of dollars of Australian aid money to Hamas. APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, has called for his release. I'm speaking about Mohammed El Halabi with... Jessica Morrison, the CEO of APAN. Jessica, we're talking about a man who, for most of his working life, has worked to support his people in occupied Palestine. Can you tell us about that work prior to his arrest in June 2016? Yes, Mohammed El Halabi, in fact, was designated a UN humanitarian hero back in 2014 to recognise the wonderful work that people do in the aid agency. And it's very difficult work, more so when you're working in your own community, I think. And so Mohammed Al-Halabi, who had five children of his own, worked in World Vision um, and was there for nearly 10 years before he was arrested and ended up being promoted to the you know manager. So World Vision do all sorts of jobs in Gaza. They support farmers and fishermen. Um, there's lots of work they do with children who are traumatised by war because you can imagine in just frightful mental health situations for children who've been through all those bombings by Israel. And as well as supporting other families who've got really difficult issues managing disabilities as well as the poverty that they face in Gaza. Um, so Mohammed Al-Halabi was working with all these communities and in fact there's letters and pictures of all the communities that he worked with who were just so shocked that he was arrested by Israel. And he came to Australia too, didn't he? 
Yeah, he did. He did. There's some beautiful photos of him and World Vision staff standing in the Grand Hall of Parliament House. He came on a, a lobbying trip to Canberra to talk about the wonderful work that World Vision have done. And in fact, there's a wonderful photo that Dave Sharma tweeted of him and Mohammed Al-Halabi and some others in Gaza, to, uh, him saying he's tasted the wonderful strawberries that World Vision were supporting farmers in Gaza to do. So, he, you know, he worked with high-level people, parliamentarians and diplomats. You know, he was a wonderful manager and strong humanitarian. Well, tell me then, how can a humanitarian hero end up in jail, tortured, beaten, spending time in solitary confinement? Yeah, look, I mean, Israel is running a military occupation, which means that they're able to do all sorts of things they wouldn't normally do. And it is not unusual for Palestinians to receive allegations that are ridiculous. So in this case, Mohammed travelled to Jerusalem, as he often did, to have meeting with other World Vision staff. And on his way back, Israeli security services arrested him. And they accused him of embezzling funds and sending them to Hamas. And at the time, everybody was in outrage. I mean, World Vision is not seen as a radical activist aid agency. It's a very conservative Christian agency that still does sponsorship of children. I mean, this is World Vision. And the head of World Vision Australia, Tim Costello, who we know, as well as the international World Vision, were just flabbergasted. Tim Costello said... This is, he was profoundly shocked at these allegations he called explosive. You know, they were clearly politicised allegations. He was accused of funnelling $50 million to Hamas. Now, in his job, he was allowed to allocate up to 15 grand at a time. Anything more than that, he had to ask for external approval. So everyone's going, really? You think he's taken up to $50 million in $15,000 lots? The international president of World Vision went, what are you talking about? Our last budget for the last 10 years is only half that amount of money. How on earth, in the whole time that he's been working for us, could have he embezzled double our whole operating budget and been able to run programs? Like, it's just preposterous allegations. And so, you know, we we assume that he would be released quietly quite soon because... You know, it's one thing to put somebody up on ridiculous allegations, but it's another thing to keep them in jail. But, as I said, Israel's running a military occupation, and what you can get away with or to seek to justify the military occupation is really different to your normal, your normal processes of the rule of law, due process. And so, you know, straight after that, the government done what the government always does and had the most conservative response. It stopped funding to World Vision, Australian aid funding to World Vision immediately and launched their own investigation. And what did their investigation find? That there was nothing to suggest any diversion of government funds. World Vision commissioned independent audits from major accounting firms and they have a, you know, fine tooth comb through, look at World Vision's material, no evidence to see that. In fact, the only thing it comes up with is Mohammed was absolutely meticulous to make sure that the records showed that given, you know, Hamas rule the strip. So it's very difficult to make sure that you've got very clear arms breadth. But actually, Mohammed did everything that he could, like to strengthen the processes and make sure it was very clear that there was an arm's length at all times. 
And that was in 2017. And then, you know, now we've got three years later, he's still been going through this ridiculous process. I mean, they call it a trial process, but it's nothing like we would understand of court processes. I mean, we understand that two different parties come before an independent prosecutor. Whereas this court judge, you know, the, the panel of judges that are here, you know, also serve in military courts. You know, these are people who have a deep sense of what security prisoners mean and threats to the states mean. So when, when the prosecution says, oh, no, we can't produce that evidence, it would compromise security. They say, oh, okay. And so, so evidence is never able to be properly scrutinised. Got this man who's been in jail for four and a half years say they've still seen no credible evidence to suggest it. And, you know, as I say, World Vision play a very cautious bat and are not political. You know, most of their funding base are Christians. Have any other Australian aid agencies had problems before in a similar yeah, vein? They have, they have. Look, political attacks on anybody who's supporting Palestinians and even their basic, you know, day-to-day necessities come under attack. So, again, there were some political attacks on a feeder saying that there were connections with terrorists. And, again, the Australian government did the most conservative thing and halted funding to a feeder. I mean, a feeder's the aid agency of the union movement. They halted funding to a feeder in the West Bank. And, you know, it was shown that though there was nothing actually to support the allegations. They were just politically motivated. So a feeder's funding was restored. But in this case, the Australian government were saying they wanted to, you know, see what the Israeli processes found. And it's, it's still very unclear from DFAT. We get quite mixed messages about whether World Vision could have had their funding restored or it's just the fact that now that whole project is coming to a conclusion, that kind of funding round is finishing next year. So it's unclear whether World Vision haven't got funding now because of logistical reasons or it's a blockage. But yeah, World Vision funding was never restored to do really vital work in Gaza. So what you're saying is instead of supporting Mohammed and World Vision, the government is siding with Israel. Yeah, we haven't seen anything that suggests the Australian government is supporting him uh, behind the scenes and they're certainly not supporting him publicly. So when the report came out in 2017 saying there's no evidence to support the charges, Dave Sharma, again, who was the ambassador at the time, said, well, just because there's no evidence doesn't mean it's not true. We'll let Israel have its processes. So which meant that this guy who was working with Australians, who was working to support Australians doing aid, who was working with Australians and with the support of Australian aid agency World Vision, is sitting there in jail and we are not backing him. You know, the Australian government saying, oh, well, whatever the Israeli process is, is whatever the Israeli process is which appears to be very different to the approach they're taking with Iran at the moment. You know, the Australian government didn't say, well, the Iranian government can do whatever they like to Kylie. There was intense negotiations to get her home. So what what has been happening for the sake of Mohammed? And this is a man who actually spoke in Parliament, Australian Parliament. Uh, Well, he didn't speak to the Parliament themselves, but he spoke in Parliament House. This is the man 
who has been inside the Australian Parliament, who's spoken at an event that was at Parliament House. I mean, this is not a wild radical. This is somebody who's met all the stringent approvals of the Australian government for all of the ways that we need to restrict how our aid money is spent. Have any Australian politicians stood out, stood up for him? Look, three years ago, Penny Wong asked questions about him in estimates. So we'd really hope that Penny Wong, who's the foreign affairs spokesperson for, for Labor, could raise the issue more broadly. So we actually, since 2017, when Penny Wong, as shadow foreign affairs spokesperson, raised in, in estimate, we hadn't hear, heard a peep out of anybody else until August, when Chris Hayes, who has a Western Sydney seat, Labor member, we had a right-wing conservative Labor, but Labor Party guy, he, he stood up and talked about how shocking it was that this man was in jail and that Israel needs to either give him a fair trial or let him go. So Chris Hayes did speak up for him back in August and really that's been part of us saying, well, actually, what more can we all be doing to support him? And that's why APAN's launched a campaign to support this man and to support his cause. So if you go to apan.org.au, you can find our campaign that will write a letter directly to the Minister of Justice um, in Israel, which, you know, might not make much an effect in itself, except we're making sure it's also copied into all the Australian political leaders uh, so they know that it's not just Australian individuals but Australian politicians who are noticing that there's pressure on this man. So we would love people to jump on our website and to send an email in support of Mohammed Al-Halabi, who's a humanitarian hero as designated by the UN, um, and was serving doing some great work in Gaza when he was unfairly arrested by Israel over four years ago. Is it known where he's being held and what sort of legal support he's getting? Uh, yeah, Mohammed is held in an Israeli jail and has very limited access to family and his lawyers. So we've, of course, wanted to make sure we had him consent to do this campaign, um, but it's been very hard for him to get access. And the rights of Palestinian prisoners who are considered security prisoners are very low. So often they can only visit family once a month for an hour. Often they are denied, you know, access to legal counsel and so forth. And it's the trial itself that's been really problematic. So, I mean, there, there's a litany of things that the lawyer has said that have, you know, been tremendously unjust. So the defence has been denied any copies of the transcripts of the hearing. So they can only view them when security service say they can and not to copy them. In fact, the defence has said they're not even allowed to write their own notes on their own computers about the court case. Just ridiculous. All the proceedings occur in Hebrew, even though the judges are fluent in English and Muhammad is fluent in English, all the proceedings are conducted in Hebrew, and the translation has been so bad that often the judges have stopped the proceedings because the translation was so inaccurate. In fact, World Vision staff, we've been told, have often been sitting in the back of the courtroom and they've been asked to be the official translators by the judge because the translation was so bad. So it's just ridiculous. You know, there's witnesses that the defence want to call, but the court case is in, in Israel, and the Israeli prosecutors have said, well, if you try and bring it, witnesses across the border into Israel, we'll arrest them. 
as accomplices. So it's just been this hideous process where every time they try and, you know, find processes to mount their argument, they're blocked and blocked again. The, you know, the, the primary evidence isn't, isn't being produced. You know, it's photocopies of evidence that's obviously being tampered with um, and redacted. So there's no chance here of a fair trial for Muhammad. They've had four and a half years to find any sort of substantial, credible evidence. They haven't, and it's way over time for them to release him. Now, they're trying to get him to, conf- to confess, as I've read, that involves torture. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's very routine for the Israeli military to use torture in interrogation processes. This has been really well documented, including against children. And the UN agencies, including UNICEF, have put in significant concerns about about the way that prisoners are treated. So there are very, very high conviction rates of Palestinians in Israeli jails don't normally happen because people have gone through a trial, but because people confess. And, you know, like, Muhammad was offered a plea bargain, which would have meant he did three years in jail. Um, he's already been in there for four and a half years now. And he, on principle, said, no, I'm not going to plead guilty to something that I, I didn't do. And so you can see how this, this is how the, the system works, to put people under incredible pressure to solitary confinement, pressure positions, torture... Mohammed says that he's been beaten so badly that he has permanently lost hearing. So this is a military regime. Military regimes are inherently brutal, and this one has brutalised both Israeli people and Palestinian people because of this decades-long process where Israeli military have been trying to control Palestinians. So, yes, there's been relentless pressure to confess and frankly, it would have gone better for Muhammad personally if he had a confessed and his time he'd be released. But he's a principled man. And he's saying, no, I'm not going to confess to something that you have no evidence of and that I never did. So, yeah, he's had a horrific time in there. Is it known how his family are getting on? He has five children. Yeah, look, we've been in touch with his dad who's just so, so distressed about the situation and he can't believe that his son who's such a humanitarian and such a community man and such a non-political man, um, has ended up in jail. So, look, the the family are feeling desperate. His kids, you know, he's got five children. They've all got four and a half years older during this time and they just can't believe it. And they're so worried for him. They're so worried for his health being in jail and they're so worried about his, his general well-being after all the years, and so they all desperately miss him and are desperate to get him home. And I'd imagine none of those children have seen their father during that period. I don't know that, actually. Well, if you give the details again, Jessica, for people to put a bit of pressure on. Yeah, so it'd be wonderful if people can come to the APAN website, apan.org.au. Just takes one minute to send an email to the Israeli Justice Minister, but also goes to our political leaders to put the pressure on that it's time to release Mohammed now. This will be the last time I speak to you for the year, Jessica. What's the year been like for you with COVID and all the other things that have been happening? Yeah, look, it's been a a horrendous year for Palestine and for Palestinians. Um, Trump has wreaked havoc which has meant normalisation deals with countries that Trump's been able to bend the arms of. 
Sudan, who had to come off the terrorist list to have a normalisation deal with Israel, um, and Palestinians in the grips of a devastating second wave of coronavirus. Palestinians in Israel and Israelis are facing the start of a third wave. So it's been horrible for Palestinians. There's some relief on the horizon with Biden. Not hope, but relief. We don't think Biden's going to make any big differences, but at least he won't make things horrendously worse. So we've been doing as an organisation what you can what you can do. We've um, had some great online campaigns and pushed the government and the opposition on the International Criminal Court, ensuring anti-Semitism isn't being weaponised. Um, we've engaged with the media and people have done all sorts of training to to get up to speed with what's been happening. So we're just booking flights to Canberra for next year because we need to put some serious pressure back on this government and the opposition to stand up for Palestinian rights. So we're gearing up to go back to some of the things that we couldn't do this year. But it's it's been a really powerful year where Palestinian supporters have been really creative in finding other ways that we can advocate and lobby and put pressure for Palestinian freedom and justice, which has been denied for just far too long. And just one other thing, Jessica, involving young Palestinians here in Australia more in the cause. Yeah, no, look, I, I think, you know, it's often a painful lesson for many of us that if we want young people to lead our movement, then we need to make space for them. And so we've been really excited to support lots of young Palestinians to do their thing uh, this year um, on the 15th of November, and you can watch the whole event on our Facebook uh, Palestinian young people here in Melbourne uh, ran a Palestinian National Day event where there was poetry and dancing and speeches and wonderful things about young Palestinians who absolutely deeply want justice for their homeland than to be able to visit their homeland without discrimination and being stopped at the border. So Palestinians are, you know, wonderfully hopeful about the capacity for change to come. Thanks, Jessica, once again. All right. Thanks, Jan. I've been speaking with Jessica Morrison from APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, and do get onto their webpage, apan.org.au, to sign that statement for the release of Muhammad. Hi. Man's here from the Japarong Embassy. On October the 26th, after two and a half years of defending sacred women's country, the embassy, family, friends and supporters were forcibly removed from country by Victoria Police. The Andrews state government, alongside Major Roads Projects Victoria, have begun their violent attack to desecrate the sovereign lands of the Japarong to make way for the duplication of the Western Highway between Buangal and Ararat. There are many old growth trees, one significant tree in particular, a 350-year-old yellow box gum, the Directions tree. She's a placenta tree who holds the DNA of the Japarong ancestors. She was felled by a chainsaw at the hands of a government that is asking for a treaty with its first peoples. The embassy and its frontline protectors are calling out for your help. To find out more, including how to get to the embassy to help defend on the ground, visit the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy's Facebook page. Educate yourself, donate to their chuff campaign, and spread the word. 
3CR supports the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaty. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1-800-729-367. That's 1-800-729-367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Esto es 13R Radio Capucha. Feminist Radio in Spanish every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Radio Capucha. Radio Feminista en Español. Todos los miércoles a las seis y media p.m. We have seen record numbers of protests in Latin America recently, explicitly calling for an appropriate response to the pandemic, alongside the protection of healthcare workers and social and economic welfare for the population. Ecuador, Brazil, Bolivia and Chile have all grown increasingly feeble in their justifications for both a lack of action against coronavirus as well as their increasingly authoritarian behaviour. Suffice to say, the Latin American right is being undone by its contempt for public healthcare. Its contempt for an essential human right. And with their traditional backer, the USA, embroiled in its own pandemic nightmare, the kleptocrats, religious zealots and maniacs leading Latin America's right wing are now on their own, it seems. And the region's people, from all available evidence, are perfectly aware of this fact. And their actions against this public health and political emergency are becoming all the more radical. After all, it is a matter of life and death, as it has always been in Latin America. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. 
Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. One of the areas of the world which is largely forgotten here in Australia is the northwest of Africa, specifically Western Sahara, the last colony in Africa. In 1975, Spain withdrew, but before doing so, made a secret agreement with Morocco, France and Mauritania to dismember the country to deny its independence. The Australia-Western Sahara Association, a small dedicated group of activists, worked tirelessly to keep the issue of independence alive and for many years I've been interviewing members, a small number of Western Saharans who visit Australia and the representative of the Polisario Front in Australia, Kamal Fidel. But the main person has been Kate Lewis and today we look back on 2020 and with some apprehension for the near future as Africa's oldest conflict has reunited. Kate, can I ask you first how you first came involved with Australia Western Sahara Association? Well, I got involved with OSA when I first came back to Australia. I'm from Melbourne, but I got involved in 2003 when the group that had already been set up in Sydney had invited a Saharawi to visit because I'd been involved already with the issue and I was known to the Sahari representative who'd come to Sydney, Kamal Hadel, he got in touch with me to see if I would organise the Melbourne part of Fatima Mahfoud's visit. That's how I first got uh, into doing things in Melbourne. I said to Kamal, no, I'm retiring. (laughs) He said, oh, no, this is your retirement project, he said. When was your first visit? to the area? Uh, my first visit was not until 1998. Uh, I had been involved for almost 10 years prior to that. I had not actually been to the camps. At that time, James Baker had become the uh, personal envoy of the Secretary General and charged with setting up the, the, uh, the peace process and working towards a referendum. And everybody thought that it was actually going to happen. And so the, the, the solidarity groups were preparing people who could go as international observers to observe the vote of self-determination, the, the referendum. I was able to tag along with a group from Belgium who were going just at a time when it co- was convenient for me. So uh, that was my introduction to the camps. It was very interesting. I was lucky because uh, this particular group was led by Hilt Torben, who was the lead person in Oxfam in Belgium, who was delivering aid to the camps. So she knew the whole place inside out and had very good contacts. And so she set up a very interesting program for us. We went to... um, a hospital, we went to a school, I think we met some people from the army, I can't quite remember that. We certainly went to the their war museum and we also went and visited the Moroccan prisoners at that time. There were still Moroccan Moroccans being held prisoners in the camps and uh, and we went to, to see them which is a sort of gesture of goodwill or something 
Otherwise, it was only the International Red Cross that they ever saw. So, yeah, that was something that, you know, was interesting because uh, mostly the Sahrawis, if they are leading a delegation, they wouldn't have taken us to meet the Moroccan prisoners. Yeah, it was during Ramadan, which was very difficult for the guide. He left us to have our lunch, but I remember him coming back and somebody had left a sardine on the plate. We hadn't served ourselves to all the ones that were being offered. And he was saying, standing there saying, I could just eat that sardine. <laughs> but he was being very good and being, and fasting during the day. Of course, they do then break their fast when the sun goes down and they have their prayers and then they go and and make um, an, an enormous meal. So really it's just a question of transferring the eating part of the day to the to the night. And if they're trying to do a job, of course, then they get rather little sleep because they also celebrate with family into the small hours. But that was all quite interesting because I'd never been with people celebrating Ramadan before. But you also had the sense of the hardship of the camps and how it was a very big treat to have some fresh oranges as they did. Oxfam in Belgium provided them with dates and oranges for Ramadan. So they had some fresh ingredients in their diet. So it's been a long time for your support for Western Sahara Cape. And in that time since 2003 here, you've been back, but you've also invited people from Western Sahara and from the camps to come and visit Australia. Oh, we have, that's right. Uh, actually, yes, then, and we've also organised a visit for Australians to go to the camps uh, in 2004, and that was interesting as well. Dr. Meredith Bergman with us, who was at that time the uh, leader of the Senate in New South Wales, that entitled us to, to stay in the President's guest house, which was pretty flash compared with the, the visitor accommodation we had in the, uh, uh, the, the sort of centre where NGOs stay in, in the camps the first time. So that was interesting too. And also, I asked if we could go to the Liberated Zone. Kamal organised that and we we drove through all of the uh, Algerian desert to the Sahrawi border. We went in and we saw the military wall that separates the Liberated Zones from the Occupied Zone of Western Sahara. And we saw the very interesting prehistoric rock art, both painting on rock overhang cave sort of place, just like we have in um, indigenous uh, uh, art in Australia, also stone carvings in another place. And that they, the animals depicted show that it was a very different climate in that period. It was probably quite a a jungle and a lot of water um, because of the the animals that they show. So all of that was uh, very interesting in in another way. And over the years, as I said, you've had people come from the camps to Australia? That's right. Yes, after after Fatima 
was the first. She, I suppose, represented the, the side of the camps, although she was a diplomatic representative in Rome at that time. We chose her because she, we knew she had a passport because it's often a bit of a performance getting passports for people to travel. Then we've had Melanie Lachal, who was somebody that we met in 2004 when we went with the Australian group. He had just escaped from the occupied territory maybe a, about a year previously. He had been in uh, demonstrations and was wanted by the police. He'd, he was, had just graduated from uh, Agadir University in English, so his English was good. After he was in hiding for a year, he decided that that was not a way to live a life and it wasn't going to do any good to anybody really. And so he decided to escape to the refugee camps and was successful. He got through the heavily mined wall at night <laughs> in a minefield, not something that many people would feel comfortable about doing, I think. He was wanting to be a journalist. He thought that that was what he could do, or he, to get himself to a place where he could tell the Sahrawi story to the world. And so he was um, working with the Department of Information and, as a journalist, and then he set up a, a union of Sahrawi writers and journalists and created a website for them to, to be writing news in Arabic and English, which was terrific. I think he had plans for a Spanish version of the site, but I'm not sure if that actually ever happened. So, yes, he's a, he's a very interesting character, and he had a long visit here in, in Australia and also went to New Zealand. Fatima went to New Zealand, too. Uh, he went back to the camps. He had a stint in the office with the representation in Addis Ababa, which is not just an ordinary Sahrawi embassy, but it's uh, also the, the embassy that looks after the African Union. I think possibly as a result of that, he decided he would like to do uh, diplomatic work, and he's now the ambassador in Botswana, but still in touch and still making stories on the Internet. Moving forward to 2020, and there are great concerns now for the future with Africa's oldest conflict reuniting. Yes, exactly. There's been a an issue around, I mentioned the military war. We saw it fairly much in the north of the country, but if you follow the whole line of it right down, it then sort of turns at right angles to close off the southern border of Western Sahara with Mauritania. Along there, fairly much at the coast, the Moroccans broke through the wall and made a road. There's a buffer zone on each side of the wall where there's not supposed to be any military activity. They broke through that and went through the buffer zone and created a passage right through the wall that could take traffic all the way to Mauritania and beyond into the rest of Africa. The Polisario have been complaining about this. This has been going on quite a long time. That opening was not there in the, at the time of the ceasefire in 1991, 
nor was it part of the military agreement in 1997. So as soon as they saw some activity around this question of opening, an, uh, making an opening, making a crossing, in the uh, early 2000s, I think the very first thing happened, they've always complained to the UN who's basically done nothing about it. They've reprimanded them, they've told them to go back and not do it. But more recently, they've, they were actually putting bitumen on the road so that it wasn't just a, 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 a dirt road, but it was a proper kind of highway. And that was very controversial. But again, it sort of, the thing kept grumbling along, including at the beginning of the very beginning of this year, we sort of began with a, in the, on the 7th of January, a big challenge to this, the use of this road by something called the Africa Eco Race, which was going right through there to uh, cross to Mauritania and continue their, their race. Again, the, there was a protest by the Polisario to the UN who, as I said before, did just told both parties to keep cool and, and, and not do anything. And that's um, how things were remaining until just uh, recently in, in November, the, some Saharawis from the camps who've been getting very, very frustrated with the UN not doing anything. Young people who are highly trained, they've been uh, abroad, they've been educated, and they come back and they just sit in the camps thinking that people are saying fine words, but they're actually not doing anything. And how long are we going to wait for them and be patient? And some of them have been wanting to go back to war. But instead of going to war, they actually just organized a peaceful demonstration. Uh, it's a, a long journey. It will have been a big adventure for them to come right down to that southern border. And they uh, made a blockade in the buffer zone where Morocco is not supposed to go. Then suddenly there was a huge tailback of these massive trucks that you could count how many of these trucks were going through, carrying plunder from Western Sahara. They're bringing fresh produce, probably tomatoes, melons, cucumbers. All of these are grown in glasshouses using what is called fossil water, like it's an artesian basin for all intents and purposes, a non-renewable resource. It is very large, but it's not renewable. I, I say they're exporting water. Uh, it's wrapped up in a cucumber or a tomato or, or whatever, but it's um, using that finite supply of water that would uh, should be at the disposal of the Sahrawi people, not making money for the Moroccans. The king owns a lot of these farms where, where the... Uh, those vegetables are created, are grown. They would also be bringing fish and fish products. There are factories in Dakhla, quite a big centre for fishing. The different foreign fleets are fishing there. I saw a documentary ages ago on SBS called Nomads of the Sea, and it was about how the Moroccans itinerant nomadic Moroccan workforce comes down to the south at the time of the calamari season and they catch all these uh, squid and, and calamari and octopus and they're very 
much favoured in in Asia. So that there was a Korean. We went into a. I mean, the the film went into a Korean factory where they were freezing this uh, the catch and sending it back to Korea. So that was, um, I presumably on a on a on a, it would go back on a ship with a refrigerated hold. But I think all of that sort of thing is happening. Western Sahara Resource Watch has just brought out a report on fish products and fish meal showing how much of the catch in Western Sahara ends up feeding salmon farms elsewhere in the world through fish meal that is made. So that kind of thing would be also shipped through this uh, gate at Jagarat. Uh, so the Moroccans didn't want to have, um, they wanted to let those 80 trucks through and they mobilized their army. They brought down a, a, a armored tanks and lots of army. Then the Saharawis were alerted and they got their army all at the, on the alert. Eventually, it was clear that the Moroccans were going to violate the ceasefire. So the Saharawi uh, army escorted the, the uh, civilians to safety and before the um, Moroccans opened fire. But uh, they were the ones, according to the Saharawis, and I think it seems I wasn't there, but it sounds like it's the actual story that the ceasefire was broken by the Moroccans not by the Saharawis, but the, since then the, the official ceasefire was over. There have been border clashes at different points right up the length of the wall, right up to the north at Mahbez. It fizzled out a bit now, frankly, but uh, we'll see. It's such an uneven contest, isn't it, with Morocco getting the military hardware from France and US and Israel. Where do the Western Saharas get their support from? They've got support from Algeria. In the past, they used to have some support from Russia. You know, then, the, then the propaganda would say that they were uh, uh, <laughs> communists or something, but that was in the days of the Cold War, and if you had to be on one side or the other, and uh, Morocco managed to woo America on its side, that was where they could get some arms. So there were Russian planes and arms and things, I think, in play during the 14-year conflict in the uh, 70s and 80s. But whether that, that, that relationship persists, I, I couldn't say. I, I, I don't know where, where they're getting their arms from, but it's certainly not as well financed. Saudi Arabia, don't forget, too, they do a lot of funding. Yeah, all the others you mentioned, America um, and, and Israel, yes. Morocco's got some very rich and influential friends. And that's the main reason why they haven't got their independence, I would assume. But looking now, the repression against the people of Western Sahara has always been there in the occupied territories. In recent times, that has increased. And a couple of weeks ago, you told the story of a wedding. Can you have the outcome of that story. That's right. Yes. Uh, well, it was very sad because it was a, a journalist that we have actually interviewed on this program called Nasha El-Khalidi. She ha- she's not just a journalist, she's an activist as well because she 
was um, at that time when we first got her talking on Jan's program, she was in trouble for having filmed police beating protesters and on her phone. And and she was taken to court and she was put in prison for a while, I think. And then then she was released before her trial. And it was just before her trial that, that she came and spoke with us. She had got a lot of support from around the world. And that no doubt helped her to have a much more reduced sentence than she might have otherwise had. Uh, and I think she actually didn't have a sentence, a prison term. She she just um, had to pay a fine, I think, or something like that. But the Moroccans don't like independent journalists. They certainly don't like foreign journalists coming, and they very rarely let them in, and they always put them under extreme surveillance when they are there, if they do come in. There's a film made not so long ago by... Democracy now. Amy Goodman, yes. Amy Goodman, uh, four days in, in occupied Western Sahara or something like that, her film, little documentaries called. They were allowed to go around and interview people for a couple of a few days and then they just got hustled out of the country because um, they were about to cover one of these uh, demonstrations. So the Saharans have been doing as well, as good a job as they can taking, photographing all of the human rights abuses that are taking place under the noses of the United Nations, but the Minerso mission of, of the United Nations um, is not allowed to report on human rights abuses because that gets vetoed in the Security Council by, by France. And, and so then they can, uh, they get away with a lot uh, with impunity, but the more that the story gets out, the better. Nasser was getting married to the president of the group called Equipe Media that she was working for, called Ahmed Atanji. They had a, a, all organized that there would be a, a, a ceremony at home and then the, both, both the families would meet together and there would be a celebration and, and food and all those things. But the Moroccans hassled them. They... they threw stones at their house. It seems such a primitive thing to do, but it's something they've been doing a lot lately, throwing stones at the houses of activists that they don't like. Surrounded both houses of, of the groom and the bride, put them under house arrest, basically. They prevented any guests from going in to the house. And, um, and it stayed like this for, I don't know, 48 hours at least, as far as I can make out. So, yes, after, after several days of being under surveillance with police surrounding the house, uh, they have managed to get together, thank goodness. And so they are both together now, but um, they don't want a lot spoken about their whereabouts because uh, they're very paranoid that Moroccan Secret Services will somehow find out and, and make more trouble for them. And now they're not the only ones who've had trouble. There are journalists in prison. There are journalists being um, hassled all, all all around the place. One one of the big groups that that are suffering un, under the occupation. Somebody put up on on Facebook. They came for the journalists, 
and after that we didn't know what happened <laughs> or something like that. And, and of course, that's what, that's just how they would like it to be. Just um, be nasty to the Saharawis and try and make them give up. The more they do that, the more determined the Saharawis become. This is why the, I suppose the conflict has been in an impasse for so very many years. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there, Kate, but thanks for all that you've done this year, and I'm sure that we'll continue to do it in 2021. Right, thanks, Jan. And I've been speaking with Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. Australia's first LGBTIQ plus purpose-built centre opens early 2021 and we need your support. Be a giver this Christmas and send your loved ones a gift of pride. The Victorian Pride Centre has launched unique gift cards to fundraise fitting out the centre and they're the queer holiday cards of dreams. These affordable gifts and fun stocking fillers support the LGBTIQ plus community. Gifts of pride can be purchased with a few clicks. Head to pridecentre.org.au to start shopping and subscribe. The Victorian Pride Centre is a 3CR supporter. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yema Fossaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. when I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at footnote bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Tune in to Invisible Voices 2020 Human Rights Day, a World Human Rights Day special broadcast on 3CR. This Sunday, 13th of December, 2 to 4 p.m. during Queer in the Air. 
hear about the issues impacting LGBTIQA+, forcibly displaced people in the Asia-Pacific region, with the live panel discussion and Q&A from organisations working in Australia, Aotearoa, New Zealand and Thailand. Listen to this special broadcast via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. This panel is presented by Democracy in Colour and Forcibly Displaced People Network in partnership with 3CR. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically these big large fires have been quite rare but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common so we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. I contacted activist Peter Murphy last week and asked him to look back on the events of 2020 that he's been involved with and advocated for. I thought it would be difficult for an activist to have time to reflect or evaluate what has occurred and the consequences, but he agreed, although a little surprised at my heading, a year in the life of an activist. But my first question when we spoke was, can he remember the first year? Sure, 1975. Huge year, because that was the year that the Whitlam government was dismissed. That was the year that East Timor was invaded. That was the year I went to my first May Day. The year I joined the Communist Party. So much uh, struggle for Aboriginal people's rights. The year that uh, Saigon was liberated. I stood in the elections at the university, at Macquarie University, well, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since Peter. So let's talk about 2020. How many of those issues or more different issues have you been following during this past year? I looked over this year, you know, yesterday to prepare for this interview and uh, I was a bit astonished at <laughs> everything that was happening. But, you know, there's even more going on, of course, than, than there was in 1975. And I think the, the really big things uh, that struck me were um, the year began in planning for things which could never happen because of the COVID-19 pandemic happening. But the first thing I noted was the meetings to discuss planning for a forum for migrant women workers to be uh, carried out by the Asian Women at Work organisation here in Sydney, you know, the, looking to try to identify the priority concerns of those women workers and then build some kind of campaigning strategy out of that. Uh, also in January, I took part in the, the launching of a, a Filipino progressive organisation called Bayan, sort of an umbrella body uh, in Australia, and um, the event was attended by the, the sort of uh, 
don't quite think of the name, the General Secretary of Bayern in the Philippines, who I've known for a long time, uh, and uh, you know who was really showing the stress of uh, the sort of repression that they were already experiencing then. He seemed very exhausted, and uh, it was a time when people like him couldn't couldn't sleep in the same place each night. So their family life was very disrupted, and, and all of their work was just disrupted. But the, they were very much determined to uh, keep, keep on uh, developing campaigns for democratic rights and uh, livelihood in the Philippines. Lots of other planning happened. You know, we were planning for a Palm Sunday rally in March for refugees and uh, against war. We were planning for May Day with the Trade Hall, uh, the Unions New South Wales and the program of politics in the pub debates. I helped organise an International Women's Day event for Iranian women in the New South Wales Parliament to focus on the issues in Iran. All of a sudden, uh, it, it sort of changed, but just right on the cusp of uh, all the lockdowns, the Philippines' human rights work uh, meant that I had to go to Vancouver. So it was rather weird to fly off when everyone was talking about uh, airports closing and international flights closing, but it was just five or six days and uh, International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines planning meeting and uh, quite a few of our uh, members uh, of the council of it are in, in North America. It was, it was odd, though, because we, I got to Vancouver and then I found all the ones from the United States couldn't travel because of the COVID-19 and the Canadians were also... Um, coming in by Zoom a bit as well as well as being there in person. Um, but it was a good meeting. And uh, when I landed back in Sydney and had to go into 14 days self-isolation, the very next morning all of those massive queues uh, emerged outside of the Social Security Department offices around the country. And, uh, you know, we, we all knew we were in a totally different situation you know, it's been very difficult since then to, to feel like you've got a grip on, on what's happening. Uh, it's been much more a matter of uh, trying to rise to the challenges uh, of this whole new situation. Of course, I've been always writing and, and uh, thinking about the trajectory of the global economy and Australia's own economy, since, especially since the global financial crisis in 2008, and uh, this situation we're in is, you know, a sort of a highly accelerated event of economic uh, crisis and, and even collapse in some cases, which was coming anyway. So everything got accelerated by the pandemic. And uh, I think our politics is very much fluid now. Not that it's going to, you know, not that I'm optimistic we'll go in the right direction, but definitely the people in charge have, have uh, been exposed as, as very incompetent uh, making it up as they go, and they're vulnerable to a concerted challenge from uh, more from the left and progressive side of uh, the debates we have. And also regressive policies being brought in under the cover of COVID. Yes, well, I think the you know initial reactions have been okay in the sense that the government, you know, against its own instincts poured out lots of money to sustain incomes, but it did follow its instincts and refused to help, you know, short-term casual workers, overseas students, migrant workers on temporary visas, which was millions of people here in Australia. 
we couldn't stop them being, you know, themselves in that regard. But all of their instincts are to cut off all of the support. And you, you can see that they're pushing in that direction rather steadily. Probably by March, uh, you know, just a few months from now, there would be uh, a, a lot more people, I think, in a, in a lot more stress unless some kind of pushback can develop from the community. And it really will have to come from the trade union movement and, you know, more broadly, uh, other community networks. And also, as you just said, union rights, workers' rights with this demerger union bill that the government is planning? I think we started the year again with this controversy around uh, the Victorian uh, branch of the construction division of CFMEU and uh, closure of John Setker in terms of the uh, court case involving domestic violence with his wife. It hasn't been resolved properly. I've been waiting and waiting for you know, the, the good sense of uh, the community of unionists to come through and, and I was hoping that John Sitka would step away, um, but that's not happening. What's going on, I think, uh, is, is what, what happened in 1986. I was uh, then a journalist on Tribune and I had to write reports about the BLF issue, which blew up here in Sydney um, at a building site it's now the Surrey Hills Police Centre, a shocking building really. But the real issue there was conflict within the trade union movement and uh, threats of violence and even violence by one group of workers against others. This was resolved in 1986 by the isolation of the BLF, which you know is you know really very damaging to everybody. But it's really what happens when people don't. Uh, respect each other's rights and uh, stand by trade union principles. It's my opinion that we're having something like that happen now. And so the the CFMU itself, as uh, some of its leaders have said, dysfunctional, is uh, splitting apart. So the law that you're referring to that they're talking about, let's wait and see what it is. You know, there's enough bad things happening from, from the uh, Morrison government towards workers. Uh, I think this is a self-inflicted wound. Um, which, you know, people need to address quickly as they can. And, you know, I'm a bit pessimistic about it. As a long-time gay rights activist, how do you judge 2020? It's been a torrid year in lots of ways. Uh, My own particular connections have been, you know, one level really still flowing from 1978 and the first Mardi Gras, a group of us 78ers have worked with the section of the New South Wales Police with the blessing of the Commissioner to produce a video about 1978 and the struggle for uh, LGBTQI rights uh, to be used in the sort of safe, you can't really say this, but in the school safety education program which the police uh, operate, positive, cooperative, and uh, progressive intervention. But on the other hand, we've got Mark Latham as a One Nation member of the New South Wales Upper House putting forward a series of bills uh, which are really vicious, uh, anti-LGBTQI, particularly one of them focused on transgender students and uh, in schools and teachers who who might, uh, in fact, who should, who should be 
including those uh, students and making sure that they're not subject to uh, any bullying and also that the student cohort that they're part of is uh, able to understand what's going on and be supportive. Uh, that bill has got to the second reading stage a couple of months ago and uh, we had a demonstration at Taylor Square which is one of those sort of symbolic LGBTQI sites in Sydney and uh, it was you know, disrupted by the police um, under the alleged um, rubric of COVID-19 safe and so on. That one ended badly, but just just a week ago there was a, a another one because the rules got changed and uh, at, that was a similar size, about 300 people. Um, it was really well attended and uh, very fine spirit there of uh, uh, resistance to the threat coming from Mark Latham and are really calling on the New South Wales Parliament. And I made this point myself there that in, in the apology in 2016, which the whole Parliament gave to the 78ers, they said that the 78ers deserved uh, their thanks for helping improve the quality of uh, New South Wales society. And yet now they're indulging Mark Latham. And it's just a private member's bill. It should never have been allowed to go on the uh, business paper. Of the, of the parliament and uh, we're calling for them to withdraw it. So you can still see that there's a very nasty, dangerous hate campaign being driven by a small element with some political leverage and uh, this is reflected at the national level in the coalition as well. You know, we've still got fights at that level as well as the, the absolutely ongoing, permanent in a way, effort at the grassroots and community level to make sure we include everybody um, in the LGBTQI spectrum and that everybody has got uh, opportunity to fulfil themselves the way they are. We need a lot more respect yet. And the treatment over many years of the Australian governments of refugees, not only on Manus Island and Nauru, but in the detention centres here in Australia, and I'm not sure what it's like in Sydney, but we've got a hotel here or two hotels here where refugees are being kept in their rooms for over a year waiting, so-called waiting medical treatment and dreadful conditions to be in, probably worse than where they were before. In some ways that's right, yeah. Well we know that the government has pursued this really vicious punitive campaign against any of the asylum seekers or refugees from Manus and Nauru who are here in Australia and who speak out. They've also done this broader thing of cutting off financial support of any sort to all the others who who came here on medical uh, evacuations from those two offshore torture places. You know, the community itself is, is trying to sustain these thousands of people, in fact, we we know that um, Dutton, the minister, uh, lost his bid to take the you know, mobile phones off people in detention. But here in Sydney, the main detention centre is, is the Villawood um, Immigration Detention Centre, where people are held, you know, and then they're moved to somewhere else in the middle of the night, and then they're moved back a few months later. And absolute disgrace. And it's been done sort of a bit under the radar because of the COVID-19. Um, as I said earlier, you know, we were trying to organise the day of rallies on this issue for Palm Sunday 
which all had to be cancelled because of the pandemic. But now that we're coming out of the sort of very severe restrictions, people can focus again. And, and here in Sydney, there's a, going to be a protest about this very issue uh, Saturday coming. So let's see what kind of expression we can get. Um, it's a disgrace uh, of our whole federal parliament. There is bipartisan policy really from Labor and the coalition on this and uh, it's a very serious problem for all of us to try to overcome. And a thousand days on Christmas Island for a Tamil family. Well, what can I say? Bringing that family back to Bulawila is uh, a really uh, important campaign that I've certainly been part of for a couple of years now. Uh, driven by the Bilawila community, which is in the heart of a National Party electorate. And this brutal government just will not uh, listen, and I, I guess, until we can somehow get rid of them. It might be that that family is stuck. But at least the legal campaign has uh, held the hand of the government, which would well have deported them back to Sri Lanka long ago without, without that effort. The legal uh, process is still to play out. And we should really support it. There is some chance that that will provide a permanent protection visa to at least one child and therefore I think to all of the family. Let's all, you know, say we've got a strategy, we're going to drive it through and uh, there is uh, hope there. And, you know, the, the whole Game Over campaign that Craig Foster has now launched for, for everyone involved in this situation is really gaining some traction. We, we should wrap everything up into it so that uh, this dark two decades of uh, Australian brutality comes to an end. You know, the rebuilding of lives can start properly. We started off talking about the Philippines and it's a very unhappy people in the Philippines under Duterte and there's no sign it's going to get any better. We know it's going to get better, but we don't know how yet. <laughs> Back in February, uh, I was part of a trade union uh, project to bring leaders of the KMU Union Centre from the Philippines to speak to trade unions and to parliamentarians about the really repressive circumstances that are there and uh, the need for more action from Australia and from the international community as a whole to isolate Duterte and uh, put a stop to this blatant... uh, murdering of all kinds of community leaders, including trade union leaders, that's going on. Now we're at the end of the year. We just had another global day of trade union action last Monday, November 30, to draw attention to the situation that was focused on trade union repression in the Philippines because of the relaxation of the rules. We did have uh, protests, good ones, in uh, Perth, Canberra at the embassy and uh, Sydney at the Philippine consulate to drive home to the Philippines government that this issue is really hot. We uh, got our eye on them and uh, the the pressure is mounting. Because of the uh, US election, there is a little bit more room, I think, to think that the uh, US Congress will really consider an act called the, the Philippine Human Rights Act, which would suspend all military aid to the Philippines from the United States if uh, the human rights situation isn't radically improved. The European Parliament has also called for the suspension of preferential tariff uh, rates for the Philippines into Europe unless there's a significant change. 
We haven't quite got the Australian Parliament to say the same, but uh, we, we have got a resolution being moved today um, in the uh, House of Representatives by Josh Wilson from Fremantle. Where our expectation is that this uh, resolution, which also calls for a review of Australia's military aid to the Philippines, uh, will be uh, passed by the House of Representatives. As well as that, you know, in my role in the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, we've been working with the United Nations Human Rights Council, which in June and in September had to consider a, a formal report from Michelle Bachelet on the human rights situation. And it was really a very uh, hard-headed and uh, clear report that showed systemic government repression uh, in breach of its international obligations of all sorts of uh, different groups in the Philippines, including trade unions. And council, though, unfortunately, wasn't uh, focused enough on this. And in September, in a way, uh, called us, like, stalled or even backtracked a little bit and passed a resolution which, for now, has... Uh, left the initiative on human rights in the Philippines back in the hands of Duterte, which is really very, very disappointing. What we wanted was the council to authorise a higher level independent investigation from the international community into what is proceeding, and they didn't do that. So the coalition, our coalition, decided to, to launch it Anyway, so we've organised a high-level commission of eminent people to lead this project and actually today and tomorrow our very first investigations of the current situation are taking place using the internet mainly with uh, people in Mindanao. Different regions of Mindanao will be, different people will give evidence of current uh, experiences they're having in Marawi City, in the Davao area in the south of the uh, island where, for instance, the Tampakan mining project is still on the go, um, area on the northeast of the island where a huge number of uh, peasant leaders have been just killed um, by death squads. You know, we're going to assemble the information and put it back into the Human Rights Council next year um, after a series of these investigation sessions. Uh, I feel like I'm doing a lot of work a really good uh, global coalition focused on this work. We also want the Australian government to shift to a more assertive uh, position that the, the policies of the Duterte government are unacceptable and uh, the Australian government will pull back the sort of support it's been providing to the Philippines military for decades now. And it's quite substantial, isn't it, that I that military aid to the Philippines from Australia? A bit shrouded in secrecy these days, but you know, there's a few different arms of it. But we, for instance, provide training every year in Australia for about 150 Philippine military officers. This has been going on for a long time, and we're always told by our government that they're provided training in their obligations under international law and human rights and that therefore we're doing a good thing. But, in fact, the, the killing of lawyers, church activists, trade union leaders, peasant leaders in the Philippines, even this year, has been so shocking, and it's been really done by military. The evidence is the opposite. Anyway, the amount of money, uh, besides the personnel training, 
is about $45 million, but there's probably other arms of it which are unclear. And uh, the whole thing was upgraded last year to uh, I think called the Enhanced Military Cooperation Program. You know, it's like a, a shift in, in the military policy which is going against the reality of an escalating human rights crisis in the Philippines. When we had the trade union leaders here in February and we, we went to meet the Department of Foreign Affairs and told them that particularly in Negros Island where you know the most intense things have been happening in the last 18 months, you know, the defense from the other side of the table was, well, you know, we are not at war with the Communist Party of the Philippines or the people in uh, Negros, you know, but we are at war with the Islamic terrorists in Mindanao and uh, we have to keep, you know, doing that. But in fact, of course, the, the military uh, pursued and continued and expanded this repression that we've seen in Negros and also in central Luzon and southern Tagalog in the island of Luzon. You know, there's a big, big problem, I think, with the Australian government's actual programs in the Philippines. We finished the year with this absolutely shocking revelations from Afghanistan. And I would put out a warning that we will see the same Australian troops found to be doing the same in the Philippines if we don't stop the current programs. 2021 looks as though it's going to be another busy year for you. I don't know what to say about that one, uh, Jan, the pandemic is relaxing its grip on us for now, but we're not sure that it's really, you know, turned the corner finally. So I think I'd like to say everybody needs to really be aware of the needs for safe practices while uh, all through next year our vaccines might be rolled out. Maybe by the end of 2021, we will see the health situation really stabilised. But whatever the health crisis is with us, the economic crisis will be with us. And uh, as I said earlier, I think that the coalition government will really withdraw support really rapidly in uh, 2021. And we will also see uh, another law that's been put into the parliament this week to change the industrial relations system. I think that's uh, full of potential for conflict and uh, setbacks for workers. And, uh, you know, we should all be ready for you know, a united national campaign to oppose these laws, you know, be ready for some big struggles uh, that like we haven't seen for uh, many years in Australia. And globally, you know, this sort of uh, rhetoric or commentary we're getting from the economists that it's all going to be better, nothing could be further from the truth. The economic impact of this year um, and of all the preceding years, you know, have really you know, low growth, in fact, recession for a long time, they're going to catch up with, with the world. Financial crises, debt crises, and therefore unemployment, it's all going to be a higher unemployment, it's all going to be with us. And we, we've got to, you know, find the way to unite much better um, in 2021 than we have in the previous years if we're going to manage to help people through this and change the system itself. The system is in its death throes. Uh, that we call global capitalism or whatever words people want to use for that. It's it's really, you know, come come to a, a moment of we're going to make a break for a more inclusive, more sustainable, more democratic future or we're going to have a lot more trouble, uh, repression 
devastation. You know, people who are trying to engage in this, we need to reach out more, more assertively, more confidently, and, and find the way to, to make the change in the right direction. Thank you, Peter, for all you've done this year. Okay, Jan, thank you very much too. It's been really good to be able to check in with you every month or two and talk through the events. I appreciate it very much. And I was speaking with activist Peter Murphy for the last time in 2020. La Mama is thrilled to reopen and welcome you back to the theatre from the 5th through to the 20th of December. The program includes a two-week season of Iranian Bauhaus by Alna Sheskalani, a series of play readings curated by Rosemary Johns and the first live La Mama Poetica since March. To ensure the comfort and safety of audiences, artists and staff, La Mama's put together a COVID-safe plan in line with the Victorian government guidelines. You can see all the information on La Mama's COVID safety page. Check out lamama.com.au for all information. La Mama is a 3CR supporter. The Melbourne Armenian community is raising humanitarian and development funds to help the community back home as they struggle with the devastating impacts of war and conflict. Please consider donating to the Hayastan All-Armenian Fund. For more details, go to www.himnadram.org forward slash en forward slash donate. Alternatively, you can make a donation by way of direct deposit into the Hayastan All-Armenian Fund account at the National Australia Bank, BSB number 083230, account number 946770823. The Hayastan All-Armenian Fund is a not-for-profit organisation delivering education, healthcare, infrastructure, rural development and housing projects in Armenia. The Armenian General Benevolent Union is a 3CR affiliate and supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Tune into the Celtic Folk Show every Tuesday at 3 p.m. with me, Anne McAllister. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news. Current events, opinion and talk back. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Music has been at the heart of the city of Darabin's rich cultural history. Beats, Ballads and Ballrooms is an audio tour that covers the history of country, rock, 
punk, cabaret, rabbinica, folk and traditional music styles in the Darabin area. Experience as a walking tour via the Echoes app or listen to at home via the web. The tour brings listeners to 15 locations to reveal the songs and stories behind the city's venues, past and present. Visit BeatsBalladsAndBallrooms.com for more information. Beats, Ballads and Ballrooms was commissioned and funded by Darabin Arts for Hyperlocal. A 3CR supporter. For a number of years I've been speaking with members of the anti-war and peace building organisation Voices for Creative Nonviolence and the news that it will close at the end of the year although continue in a different form is sad but in many ways inevitable as the activists strive to meet the challenges of the times and current realities. One of the co-coordinators I have contacted many times is Cathy Kelly and when we spoke recently I asked her first how it all began. Was it Voices in the Wilderness back in 1995 or even further into the past? For me, it went back to 1991 and being part of the, well, what we called the Gulf Peace Team in Iraq. Uh, about 18 different countries represented and close to 80 people. That's sort of how I guess I cut my teeth on beginning to think about the consequences of U.S. warfare for people who, you know, meant us no harm. And the name Voices in the Wilderness. Right. Well, we knew that we wanted to do something that would oppose in a very vigorous way the economic sanctions against Iraq, and we just didn't have a name for ourselves. And there was a Dominican sister that we, she was just kind of a droll wry personality. Hers was that way. And we said, Jean, you know, what can we call ourselves? We we feel like, you know, we're voices in the wilderness. And she said, well, that's exactly what you are. That's what you should call yourselves. So we did. Well, the aim was very focused. We were determined that we would publicly and openly defy the economic sanctions against Iraq by bringing medicines and medical relief supplies directly to children and families in Iraq. Well, we couldn't fly into Baghdad at that point. There weren't any flights. So we would pack our duffel bags with medicines and vitamins and children's vitamins and especially, and we would travel to Amman, Jordan, and there was nothing to prevent U.S. citizens from entering Amman with whatever they packed in their duffel bags. And then we would switch to um, SUV vehicles, and we eventually identified a very reliable, wonderful driver who became a close friend as well to all of us. And we organized 70 delegations to go back and forth to Iraq in that fashion. And it took a long time. You know, it was a long ride into the country, often more than 24 hours. And then upon arrival, we'd try to sort of rest up and then get permission from the Iraqi government to get back in the cars and travel down to Basra, sometimes up to Mosul. So mostly these delegations were two weeks in length, sometimes longer. And there were a few times when I think because we had fasted in New York City for long stretches, like 30 days, at least once a year in the summertime, I think the Iraqis started to think, well, they're strange, these individuals. You know, they come from an odd background, but they're earnest. And so they started to let us try lengthier stays 
in Iraq. So, for instance, we spent uh, most of it, an entire summer in Basra, and people had told us, oh, you'll never last, it's too hot, you'll never... But it, it, we learned a lot through that. And then eventually, when it seemed inevitable that the 2003 shock and awe bombing was coming, we said we'd like to just stay in Baghdad and live alongside ordinary families. And we were granted permission to do that, which was a bit unusual at the time. How many of you stayed? When the bombing began, we probably numbered about 20. And then some were very unfortunately more or less kicked out. They had taken pictures where they weren't supposed to. And uh, the Iraqi government was aware of it. And so they said, that's it. You You have to leave the next day. That, that we were very, very sad about that, and it was actually a very dangerous trip out in there. The car that they were riding in was not directly hit, but the, a, a bomb landed right in front of it, and the driver lost control of the car, and it, it rolled. And that Actually, others on the road had arrived in Amman, and so we think some Americans were killed on the way out. But in fact, some very kind-hearted Iraqis at great risk to themselves went out and got them and one fellow loaded him onto his pickup truck and took him to a gas station and then they put them on another vehicle and finally got them to a hospital. They've also been hit by a U.S. bomb. So the conditions were pretty dire during those times you were there? Yes, we saw family after family ravaged by the economic sanctions, none more so than those who had newborns and toddlers and kids under age five who were losing their life's juices because of gastroenteritis while they were also starving and while they couldn't get painkillers, they couldn't get vitamins, they couldn't get medicines. And the doctors were beside themselves saying, you know, we could save these children if it weren't for these economic sanctions. Were you there at the time when the the babies were being born grossly disfigured because of the uranium tip bombs. You know, I I myself personally was at the bedsides of, in Basra, at least a dozen children who had just almost unimaginable deformities. Even in Baghdad, I went once to um, a a kind of a small Obigaini hospital. It was just dedicated to caring for mothers and newborns. And I was with a, a journalist photographer who knew that the journalist she worked with would really appreciate it if she could get some statistics. And so she kept asking statistical questions. And they were good questions. You know, do you, does the mother know where her husband was during the 1991 bombing? Um, how close were they to places where depleted uranium might And finally, the chief doctor, an obstetrician, took me by the hand and led me to an IV pole and attached to it was a candy wrapper and on the back of the candy wrapper written in pencil were the doctor's orders and she said please help your friend understand we don't even have pencil and paper much less do we have the ability to record the statistics she demands of us and that's what the sanctions did. You know, people who could have, you know, followed science and exercised their knowledge would have done it readily. But they were so hampered at every turn by the cruelty of those economic sanctions. And doctor's order is written on the back of a candy wrapper. 
I saw a child die because of a lack of a piece of plastic. They didn't have the right length of plastic to insert in her teeny nostril so that oxygen could be administered. They had the oxygen tank right there. The doctor just had to stand up and fold his hands and shake his head and say to the mother, I am sorry, your child cannot live. We have not the tubing. And then each time you'd go home, you'd tell me stories. We hit the ground running, Jan. Every single person that went over there took notes. Um, We tried not to show gruesome photos. We often just wanted to see people respond to pictures of beautiful Iraqi children and then you know, talk about how they were being punished and they weren't criminals. They didn't do anything wrong. And I think people tried extraordinarily to stop that war. And I think they came close. I don't think it was the mainstream media that educated the U.S. public about what was going on amongst ordinary people in Iraq. The U.S. mainstream media made it sound like there was only one person that really mattered in Iraq, Saddam Hussein. But the people who came back, I mean, they were from Vets for Peace, Pax Christi, Fellowship of Reconciliation, War Resisters League, numerous Catholic worker houses, voices, delegates that you know were friends of friends of people in various cities. It really did, I think, create an infrastructure that helped enable the enormous outpouring of resistance to that war. It wasn't enough, but it sure came close. And we ought to remember that. The world came closer than ever before to stopping a war before it started. The decision to close down Voices in the Wilderness, who made that decision and why? We had been convicted in court, and we were convicted of a civil offense, meaning they weren't going to try to send us to prison. We told them, look, we don't have any money. You can come and try to look for something, but good luck. And we said that even if we did, we wouldn't pay a fine to a government that was continuing to wage war against Iraq. And they were doing that even, you know, this was after the shock and awe bombing and the U.S. invasion, but the supplemental spending bills every year were being passed to fund ongoing United States militarism that included bombings and uh, night raids and death squads and, and many horrible activities. So we said, no, 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 we're not going to pay that fine. And then we just sort of waited a bit, and it looked like they really weren't going to even try to collect it. But we had, like as I answered with your very first question, we had been so focused. We said we only focus on Iraq because no one else will. And that's got to be the main focus of this group. But we, by that time, were beginning to respond to pleas from groups that said, you know, can you go to Gaza? Can you go to the West Bank? Can you go to Lebanon? We thought, well, really, we're not so focused on Iraq, and we failed to lift the economic sanctions. So we changed our name to Voices for Creative Nonviolence. I think many people think that, you know, we did that so that we wouldn't be held responsible for those fines. But actually, the government never tried to collect But we we liked the idea of being Voices for Creative Nonviolence. I think that suited what we were doing. Um, We were still trying to live alongside people trapped in war zones uh, and also engage in education in as many different ways as we thought might be needed that we could be capable of, whether it was walks or fasts or long vigils, legislative work, sometimes lengthy prison sentences. Uh, we, We were fortunate to be able to continue with that. 
Yes, many of the interviews I've conducted with you and also other members of Voices have concentrated on visits to Iraq or Afghanistan or Palestine, but you just mentioned then there was much more to Voices than that. Well, I think it was most important to come back from those places and be as much as possible speaking and writing and educating. And that depended then on people inviting us to come to their classrooms or their universities. Um, at one point, we had a bus travel that went for years, crisscrossing the United States and uninvited, just pulling into university parking lots and setting up shop. And many times we engaged in long fasts or vigils. There was one time after President Obama had been elected but not yet inaugurated when in Chicago in the bitter, bitter cold, we set up what we call Camp Hope near Michelle and Barack Obama's Chicago home and every day vigiled outside and had evening kind of school regarding all of the issues that we wanted Obama to take action on, that he had pledged to take action on while he was campaigning. And that was a really um, dynamic, good project. It was symptomatic, really, of voices. We used to kind of joke that we were very good at ordeal oriented projects. If we set off on a walk, it was likely to be 400 miles before we'd be done. Now I look back on the 30-day fasts that we did, and I wonder, I'm not sure we could still do that, but we did it yearly in our history. And then through to Korea and Japan, we had been admiring for quite some time what was being done at Jeju Island. And then um, David Hartsoe invited me to go over there, and it was it was quite an eye-opener to see the vigor and the uh, tenacity of people who were protesting against the takeover of their land and, and beautiful designated historic cultural territory to create a berth for a nuclear-armed destroyer potentially that could to land there and, and the United States wanted to be able to secure that coastline of the beautiful Jeju Islands. Uh, and we were part of a steady stream of Westerners that were going over to be in solidarity with the people who are still carrying on their campaign and then they've 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 been such an education to all of us. And and then they then put us in touch with activists in Okinawa who likewise were trying to resist United States encroachment on their land and to say they don't want these bases there at all and they certainly don't want them to grow. We had wanted, I think, to sort of amplify that message of resistance to United States military and economic warfare and yet at the same time realize you you cannot cover every place where the United States has bases and is pushing war. One important spot for us has been in Ireland at Shannon Airport Base, landing of United States uh, military personnel and the shipment of weapons back and forth, particularly now that those have been used against Yemen by the Saudis. I, I would say the combination of bases and United States weapons sales to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates is certainly forming up as, as, as an issue that we, we want to pay a lot of attention to. And all the other anti-war and peace groups that you've been working with over those years? There, I think there are people who have done magnificent work and, you know, people say the anti-war movement is dead, but I don't see it that way at all. I mean, if you look at Code Pink and World Beyond War, the work of all the various Catholic worker houses that are not only doing hospitality 
with some of the neediest people, but also um, trying to use their resources to educate people to say, you know, stop spending money on the weapons, spend money on food. Uh, the drone campaigns that have gone on all across the United States and across Europe, anti-drone campaigns. I think there's tremendous work that's been done. Now, The Voices is closing in the United States, as you said, and it's not because people have run out of energy. It's because of the, the situation at the moment. It just makes it so difficult to carry out some of your programs. We felt like we had to be honest with ourselves that we can't go over to Afghanistan right now. We would be, I think, a danger to our Afghan peace volunteer friends. And actually, we can't leave our own homes or our own cities. So it has been a comeuppance in a sense. I mean, um, it's hard to, uh, via Zoom presentations, pass the hat more or less. So it isn't that we didn't have enough money, but we weren't going to be able to shoulder the kind of support that we have given in the past to the Afghan peace volunteers, nor did we have any way of getting funds over to them. So we spoke with them. We spoke with one another. We acknowledged that for a long time we've been saying, you know, really in the face of climate catastrophe, our steady international travel really is a a consumptive effort of fuel that, you know, shouldn't be used in this way. And people can speak up for themselves more and more without our going there to try to amplify their voices because of the usage, good usage of technology, I think, um, through um, Zoom calls and WhatsApp and uh, Skype and other means. So it seemed like an opportune time to start to make some changes. And so I'm not quite sure what will emerge. We thought we'd have a new name and a new group up and ready to run, but we're taking our time and trying to make sure that whatever emerges fits the group that's actually going to be carrying on the work. But you must have an idea of the areas that you want to concentrate on. Well, you know, we've thought of a title. I'm showing my age here. It was my idea, actually, to call a new group to end all wars, thinking about Woodrow Wilson who in World War One claimed he was going to wage the war to end all wars. And, of course, that was a total failure, and the idea that war could end war is stupid. But the vision to end all wars is a good one, and I'm quite sure we're going to be focused a great deal on Yemen. As our friends go off to prison, we'll still continue to focus on nuclear weapons, and we'll maintain a focus on Afghanistan and Gaza. There's a you know tremendous need to deal with the prison industrial complex, the mass incarceration here in the United States, and so some of us have talked about what we might do. We've sort of uh, tinkered with the idea of choosing a prisoner and a, noting the length of time that prisoner is going to be in prison, and then from time to time um, just holding a photo of the prisoner be on our knees outside the prison, each one of us representing a different prisoner. So if I choose a prisoner who's got 15 years in prison, I would spend 15 minutes on my knees outside the prison and we could start to... I I think that idea could actually catch on in many different places. And of course, there's no forgetting the men in Guantanamo Bay. All right. January 11th will be the day to particularly commemorate the men in Guantanamo, but there will be a five-day fast 
that the Witness Against Torture has announced. And there is a, a group of people from various organizations focused on Guantanamo who meet um, just about once a week to try to, especially now, to influence the Biden administration and 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 see if um, they might take some steps to close Guantanamo. You mentioned then some of your friends off to jail, the Plowshares group. Most of your oh, group, yeah. most of your group, have spent time in jail. Well, that's true. It's um, it's been typical for activists to come from settings wherein they could do time in jail because the, the the groups that have tended to join Voices Activism kind of didn't have a whole lot to lose. They didn't have tenured university jobs. They didn't have the kinds of family setups where they couldn't possibly be let go of for a span of months. They, they often had community backup, often had a, a fluidity in terms of job responsibilities so that they could um, take some time out, and if they went to prison, they wouldn't lose their ability to work because their work was, you know, janitorial or baking or cleaning or, um, uh, you know, farming. So that we've had we've been very very fortunate to attract some pretty rugged, strong communities who could support someone that might go to prison for a time. And also, when your group's members go to jail, it's an educational process that they carry on while they're in jail. Oh, that is so true, Jan. I mean, I think the very best thing to do is to go in quietly and listen and listen and listen some more. Um, and uh, it's a rare opportunity to get an insight into the ways that this horrible incarceration system structurally beats people down and makes it so, so hard for them ever to recover. Just before we move on to the future under Biden, some of the special people you've worked with both in the US and overseas, I'm sure there are many. Are there any that stand out for you, maybe overseas? Well, when I think about Iraq, I think about two pediatricians, Mazen and Dr. Salma, and, and those two are still working in oncology wards with children who most likely are you know, not going to survive if they have serious cancers. And they're still using their own salary to help buy medicines. And they're still trying um, to deal with uh, uncooperative governmental systems and black markets. And, and it's just amazing to me that they have managed through all these years. I first met them in 1996 to persist with their good work and their goodness. I think of Abdul Hai from uh, Afghanistan, who's now in Mongolia, and he's finished up studies, and he was very fortunate. Some South Koreans gave him a full scholarship, and some people in the U.S. have tried to help sustain him. Um, but, you know, he and his sister, Zalguna, are children of a widow whose husband was killed by the Taliban when she was a a beautiful young woman, and she raised those children with um, almost no help from anyone, and raised wonderful, beautiful children. And I, you know, it hasn't been easy for her. I just heard last week that she didn't have enough money to get fuel, you know, just wood to put in her stove to keep the place warm. 
and she didn't have warm winter clothing. So people through very harsh seasons continue, and um, they should be on our minds all the time. I also think in Gaza about a family that gave me shelter during what was called Operation Cast Lead and how terrified Om Shahida was that her children wouldn't survive that bombing. And um, yet she took the risk of taking me in as a Westerner. And then finally, I've, I've been thinking a lot about the woman in Lebanon. We only knew her as Um Zainab, but she was part of the Shahub family. And uh, she had taken her daughter to stay in a place that was considered to be you know, protected against the worst of the bombs that the Israelis might have. Engineers said, look, this is the safest house in the neighborhood. And so several of the parents in this extended family bought their children there and said, just stay overnight. And then when you wake up in the morning, you can come running and I'll fix you breakfast. And darned if the United States didn't sell Israel a bunker buster. And they used that at the end of the summer 2006 Israeli Hezbollah war. And Zainab and her little friend, who was two years old, Zainab was six. The two of them were cuddled in each other's arms. And, and what killed those two little girls was that the force of the explosion of this bunker buster caused their internal organs to implode. And the mother was pointing overhead. She was injured. She was wearing a neck brace and a medical hood when we met her. And she still couldn't believe that the drones flying overhead, these surveillance drones, which no doubt had footage and could see that parents were bringing children to this house. Didn't they know, she asked us, didn't they see? Vets from the war in America, you've had contact with many of those who have now spoken out about their anti-war feelings now. Generation after generation of these veterans have come back and given such compelling witness. Aaron Hughes lives in Chicago and um, he goes every week to the Stateville prison and helps the prisoners um, use artwork in order to express their situation. And then he connects it quite often with you know, the reality that the United States spends so much money on warfare abroad, and yet, you know, in all of our cities, we've got these huge prison complexes, and the relationship between impoverishment and prison is very clear. And then the Veterans for Peace, you know, every Armistice Day, they go out and ring bells and try to say to people, we don't want a day to celebrate veterans, we want a day to celebrate ending wars. I've just lately gotten to know Danny Gerson. turns out he's half Irish, uh, and he's a very compelling writer who has completely rejected the tours of duty that he was participating in in um, both Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm sure I'll be speaking to you in the future, Kathy, but could you finish this interview with the words of Doug Hammerchild? You know, what a what a figure he was, and he said... For all that has been, thank you. And for all that will be, yes. And that's Voices. Thank you, Jan. A voice you'll hear more of in 2021. Kathy Kelly.